Thank you for tuning into Sochcast. We hope you enjoy this uninterrupted listening experience. But before that, please do listen to these messages that come from those that support your favorite show. Raj Naik's talk show Fridays Live features high-profile guests from various walks of life who engage in a free-flowing and inspiring chat with him. Welcome to Fridays Live with me, Raj Naik. This evening, I've got a very special guest. He's very well known. You would have seen him on TV. You read his books. You read his columns. He needs no introduction. A man of fine taste. My guest this evening on Friday's Live is Veer Sangvi. Hi, Veer. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Raj. Great pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So, Veer, tell me, uh, this show is all about yourself and this show is basically getting to know you better and for the viewers to get to know you better they've read your books they watched you on television uh, they read your columns but who is the real we sangvi we want to know your story and that's what the show is all about uh, so let's start with let's go back tell me about your parents let's start with your parents okay my memories of my father who died when i was 15 are probably sort of the glorified memories of somebody who never grew old enough to be able to see his parents subjectively but my father was initially a communist he finished school finished college went and joined the cpi as a full time worker fought with the cpi was expelled from the cpi then wondered what he would do my mother who was they were both what 30 at the time my mother who had been to america and came from a rich family and had a degree in industrial psychology whatever that means was working and they decided that they would get married my mother's father who was a rich guy in amdavad a mill owner who loathed my father because he was not very rich and also because he was a communist opposed it so my mother who'd been abroad and had spent 4 years in america and was very enterprising said she would set it all up she got my father a passport and then he was writing then for blitz which was a fledgling news weekly in bombay and the united nations was being set up in paris in i think 1951 so blitz in those days newspapers had a little more money than they do today sent him off to paris to cover this my mother took a ship and without telling her father or anyone secretly boarded the ship for paris she managed to get away though her father found out and sent many angry messages they met they met again in paris my father came and picked her up from the docks and they decided that they would have wait for it a hindu wedding which was a bit odd because my father was a communist and avowed atheist but my mother said like this is the only time i'm going to get married i want to do it properly so in 1951 as you can imagine it wasn't easy doing a hindu wedding in paris but fortunately there was the indian delegation to un and my father met many of them there was a guy called pn hatsar who later went on to find great fame as indira gandhi's advisor he was then he said don't worry i'll organize it and there was another diplomat called appapant who later became ambassador high commissioner who said i will be the pandit so in 1951 in paris with these diplomats in attendance and none of their friends my parents got married Wow, what an interesting story! What a, and I didn't realize how much more interesting than mine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, I we were speaking before this, and we just spoke about somebody else and uh, about their parents, and that's how the question prompt. You know, the question I prompted this question. That's why I said let's start with your parents. I didn't know it would be so interesting. So this was 1951, and 1951 was like yeah, like you said, it would have been extremely difficult. But I think it was a bold step. How did your grandparents allow your uh, mother to leave home and come to mumbai i mean well she they lived in ahmedabad and because they were well off and she was unmarried and bright they had bought her a flat in churchgate on a road in a building called indiscourt and she lived over there on her own and she managed i think to convince them that she had no contact with my father and that everything was on the level and she booked her passage she took she got on to this ship and apparently in the manner of a classic rom-com 
my grandfather found out and sent people to the dock to stop her but the ship had sailed an hour or a couple of hours before so there was nothing he could do but when she arrived in paris there was a telegram in suez in suez on the way there was a telegram waiting for her because in those days you couldn't communicate easily with ships which said if you marry ramesh which is my father i will shoot you so i thought my mother would have been terrified by this and i said won't you worry she said you saw your grandfather yeah he was a gujarati shetji with a in a dhoti and a topi you think he'd ever seen a gun in his life i didn't take it seriously so i think she was quite brave about it and she calculated probably correctly that once they got married and with the fact accompli there wasn't that much my grandparents could do and i think grudgingly eventually they accepted them and my father was a great charmer charmed them so things were okay then that's so interesting and uh, you you did mention that your father worked for blitz the newspaper yeah. blitz so was he also a journalist well he was <clears throat> he, he didn't do very much after he left the communist party he started writing and then after they got married my mother said that instead of going back to india for obvious reasons they should go to london she got a job in london and she put my father through the bar he did dinners and studied law became a barrister came back to india and started a legal practice this must be about 54 53 but during that time he continued writing for blitz and he wrote for blitz i think pretty much he died in 71 but he wrote for blitz till i think the end of the 60s it was a weekly column so he wasn't a journalist in the sense that he never reported he never went off to went to office or whatever but he was a columnist so i guess that's where i get the writing from you know it's so funny you say that about blitz uh, very few people know that i did work for rusi karanja for almost almost a year i don't and know was this yes. the daily or blitz uh blitz itself i mean uh, uh, he had he had blitz and uh, he had given up the daily it was blitz and he had four editions that time he had urdu hindi and uh, english and yeah i think three editions but uh, but not uh, this was in 1988-89 you know i used to work for a newspaper called the indian post with vinod mehta those days and indian post That was, was going to singhani corporation right yes singhanias singhanias yeah. eh? and the paper was shutting down for whatever reasons political reasons at that time and so vinod mehta went on to start the independent newspaper and he was very keen that i join him and he had actually spoken to them to take me there i i joined times of india for a day i realized that i was going to be a small cog in the wheel you know and that's when i had met rusi in a party and he asked me what are you doing and he offered me the job and i must tell you he was very few people know that but he was a man with a very big heart extremely big heart and there's a small story i should tell you here there was a conference happening in bangalore those days conferences were a big thing it wasn't like today right today every top of a hat you have a conference but those days conferences were a big thing and uh, i went up to him and i said this conference is happening in bangalore and it's an advertising conference and everybody is going to be there clients are going to be there so can i attend it and rusi said yeah please go and two days later i met him and he asked me so where are you staying in bangalore and i said i'm staying in this hotel called rama hotel on level road he said stay at the west end that's the best hotel in bangalore and that was my first time i stayed in a five star hotel i must tell you that and that was rusi karanjia for you that's you an know? amazing story because around that period the late 1980s the times of india wouldn't let anyone stay in a hotel they had to go and stay in guest houses the ht wouldn't actually give you any accommodation they gave you a per diem of some ridiculous amount like 1500 a day or 2000 a day which in today's terms but then even less and you couldn't find decent accommodation so you ended up staying with friends rusi therefore was i think extraordinary in doing that yeah he was he was he was amazing and i i can go on telling stories about him uh, lots of stories but uh, not the forum for it but just since you mentioned blitz i thought i must tell you you know i must tell you about uh, uh my experience with rusi uh so tell me so tell me about yourself tell me a bit about your childhood well i went to boarding school so there's not that much to tell i went first i'm from bombay so i went first to a montessori school called casa montessori i don't know if it still exists on oceana building on marine drive whose claim to fame then was that muraji desai had a flat there and then from casa montessori i went to campion where i was for 2 years 
after which I went in 1966 to the Mayor College in Ajmer, where I finished my ISC in 72. In those days, in India, you went to school immediately after your 11th standard. There was no 10 plus two. You went to college right after school. But it wasn't like that in England. To go to university in England, you needed to do something called an A level. The ISC counted as an O level. So I then went to school in England for two years. I did my A levels. I then had to stay for one more term to sit what was, which no longer exists, the entrance exam for Oxford University. I got in there, I took a year off more or less because the exam was in December and the term would begin the following October. And then I did three years at Oxford. So not a very exciting education, that's fine. Very impressive education. You're just being modest. Uh, very few people <clears throat> at that time to go to Oxford was a big thing. Uh, uh, so tell me, uh, what did you want to become when you were growing up? I mean, what was it? Did you, everybody has a dream, right? I mean, somebody would want to be a doctor, engineer, scientist. What was, when you were growing up, what did you want to become? Who was your role model? It was actually difficult in my case, Raj, because my father had started a company in London. He spent most of the last years of his life in London, which was doing extremely well. That was doing international advice, public relations, stuff like that. And his dream was that I would join him and work for that company. I never thought much about it. So I always imagined that this was my future and I didn't have to work about it. Then in 1971, he got cancer and died, I think within a couple of months, three months. So my whole world was sort of turned upside down in that all the plans that I had assumed had been made for me no longer existed. So then I no longer had any dreams because we no longer had the kind of luxurious London lifestyle we used to have when he was alive. So then it became just a question of survival, of trying to do something. I was very, very fortunate in that my father's family, two thirds of them lived abroad and they made sure that I was educated well. I was also born in England. So education in Oxford was free. And England has that, had that wonderful welfare state where if you got into Oxford or a good university, the local council would not just pay, pay whatever fees were required, but would also give you a maintenance grant to support yourself. So my university life is basically completely free. And other things were happening to me. I mean, everybody assumed that because I, was, I had the right of residence in England, I had the right to get a British passport, which I never did. I would make my future in England. But I was always very convinced that I would come back and live in my own country. And oddly enough, in 1976, when I was in this year off, between my school and going up to Oxford, India Today started. And they knew nobody in Bombay. They were all from outside journalism. Arun Puri had run a printing press. And I knew people there. And because I was Vela and I was cheap, they started making me do various articles and stories. They paid me virtually nothing, but I mean, I think I would have paid them because I just had so much fun doing it. And this was 76. In 78, by which stage India today was not what it would later become, but it was still a success. They said they wanted to start a magazine devoted to the city of Bombay. And would I come back and edit it? And I said, look, I already have, I come back every vacation. Oxford, the terms are really six months. So the other six months I would spend in India writing for India today. They said, why don't you edit? I said, how? I'm already spending so much time away. How will I edit a magazine long distance? And they said, no, no, we'll bring up the first issue once you finished your degree, but become editors, which was, you don't say no to that kind of offer. So of course I said, yes, I finished my finals in Oxford in July 79. And I think in August 79, we came out with the first issue of Bombay Magazine. So I never really had any time to have a dream or to think about what I wanted to do. I went from complacency to despair to being incredibly lucky. How old were you when your father passed away? 15. Oh, that, oh, that's very young. He turned that's... 15 on the 5th of July and he died on the 25th of July. It must have been very tough on your mom as well to raise you. Yeah, on me, on me because I was the only child, right? And by then her parents had died. So in India, her own family was not there. My father's family lived abroad mostly. 
so it was just her and me and all the troubles of becoming a widow in india the regular income dries up you have to make adjustments to your lifestyle that in her case i'm sure the sheer loneliness because i was the first abroad i was first in mayo and then abroad so it was a tough time for her and i guess not so tough for me because when you're young it's probably easier for you to take these things so when she came back to bombay was she working i mean uh, did she continue working here no my mother had given up in the 60s she decided that there was no point doing working they offered her a job in the family mills which were quite thriving then though by the 70s when the textile industry collapsed the mills collapsed as well but she didn't want to do that she wanted to become an artist so i think 62 or thereabouts maybe earlier she decided she wanted to become a potter and she went off to devon in england and i went with her and we lived with an english farmer in his family and she apprenticed herself with a ceramic artist called mariam the the three i think who was quite big at the time she learned pottery she came back to india turned the garage into a studio and became quite a successful potter she had about five or six exhibitions when she was active so there was the pottery to keep her occupied but it was never a means of earning a living it was no more than in those days even top artists didn't make much money so there was no hope of doing anything other than getting some kind of creative satisfaction so would you call yourself a journalist by accident yeah i think almost everything i have done has been accidental accidental television anchor accidental editor accidental food writer so i think my life largely is an accident so i never make any plan you know that cliche that life is what happens to you when you're making other plans well that's true in my So so tell me how did uh, you you launched Bombay magazine right i mean i remember i, I remember bombay uh, it lasted for quite some time it was there till early mid 90s i think yeah early 90s i left i launched yeah. it i stayed on till april 1981 okay and i mean you must remember that while i enjoyed doing bombay magazine and i regarded all journalism as being equally valid and equally challenging i was happy writing about raj kapoor when i was writing it the next week was the launch of the bjp to me none of those things made any difference there was a part of me which said you know i've gone to oxford i've done this degree i've done well at oxford do i really want to spend my time covering what is happening in bombay and in 1981 the inlax foundation which was then not very well known offered me what they called a fellowship which was i mean again a dream job they said for 6 months we'd pay for you to travel wherever you want to do whatever project you like and then another 6 months we'd pay for you to stay at home in bombay and write up what you found so my project which i chose was the attitude of the western media to india as you've seen it as a change indians are incredibly sensitive about anything that appears on a foreign on a foreign television channel in a newspaper and we always have this prejudice that they hate us they don't like us they are determined to do us down and we hardly ever hear the other side so from 81 to 82 i traveled through england i went to paris i went all over america i went into newsrooms i sat in on editorial meetings i met journalists and editors asked them what their attitude to india was and it was interesting because the americans had no attitude to india they didn't even know we existed the brits <laughs> had this sort of grudging attitude whereby they loved india in their own way but they had this sense of that we weren't really up to running a country and they wanted to see what would happen at the same time even then among many british journalists there were great india hands people who married indians james cameron who was a great british journalist of his generation was married to an indian Charles Wheeler was a great BBC journalist who was married to an Indian and his daughter Marina Wheeler went on to marry Boris Johnson Ian Jack was married to an Indian there were loads and loads of people married to Indians so there were people who loved India but generally it's true they were skeptical about India and skeptical about our political prospects what changes have you seen since then because Well, I think we've gone through a couple of phases. There was one phase when we were seen as being possibly in the 
the next China. There was a lot of excitement about the information technology revolution. There was a lot of excitement about outsourcing. The city of Bangalore became a verb in that if you lost your job, it, you were said to have been Bangalore because your job had been shifted out to some call center in India or someplace in India. So that excitement, I think, ended. Since then, I think the world has decided we are not going to be the next China. We may well be a very significant country, but not quite as significant as China, as they had earlier said. Now there's sort of vaguely minimal interest. I think there is some concern about what's happening politically. No matter what we may say to tell ourselves, the consensus around the world in the newsrooms and among the journalists I've met is that India is becoming a majoritarian society. And I think that causes some concern. Yeah, because uh, whilst at one time there wasn't enough coverage on India, of late we see a lot of coverage on India. Yeah. And uh, probably not for the right reasons, like you said. Uh, tell me, what did you do post -bom uh, Bombay magazine? I went off on this in Lax. Sorry, after, after, coming back, after coming back. So then I came back and my parents had a friend called R.V. Pandit. who was He was a publisher. The publisher, who then gone off to Hong Kong and made this huge fortune and was running a magazine called Industrial Products Writer, which nobody had heard of outside of the trade. But in the 1980s, was probably the most profitable magazine in India. And he edited Industrial It was just, I suppose now it could be replaced by the internet. It just told you about what new products had come out for, for industry every month. And it was a must have for anybody who was a purchase manager or who was looking for things. And the beauty of it was people sent you press releases, you reformatted them and you published it. So it cost you nothing to publish. Everybody bought it because they needed to keep up. So it was a great formula. But he had also bought a magazine called Imprint and he didn't quite know what to do with it. So he asked me to join the company as editorial director, which was a very grand title for a company that basically produced trade magazines and Imprint and then said try and turn Imprint around. So I reformatted it. I changed it from that sort of reader's digest type size it had to an A4 magazine size. And then I should have seen this coming. He said, well, now that you've planned all this, why don't you become editor? So I became editor and I was editor of Imprint till 1986, by which stage I think Pandit had returned to India and he was taking an active interest himself. He, when I took the job, he was living on the Riviera. So it was very comfortable having a publisher <laughs> with stunning himself in Nice. But once he comes back and came back and the organization was not really big enough, there wasn't that much for this glorified editorial director to do. So I looked around for something to do. Samir Jain was very, very kind and offered me a very good job. He offered me editor of what was then a very significant publication, the Sunday Review, which was the Times of India's Sunday supplement. But I had a sort of strange feeling about staying on in Bombay. I had this probably wrong feeling that if I stayed on in Bombay, I would be typed as a Bombay journalist all my life. I would never see anything else of India. So completely on a whim, I rang up Avit Sarkar, who I had never met. And I knew many people who'd worked for Anand Bazaar. And I was very impressed by the editorial freedom they gave their editors. And I called him up and I said, can I come and see you? So I went and saw him in his flat in what was then called Mafatlal Park. And you, you know Avik Sarkar, so yes. for somebody who's been used to, who works in Cuff Parade in Bombay, before that worked in Nariman Point, to walk into this house to see this Bengali gentleman in this sprawling dhoti and these diamond buttons on his carefully arranged with creases, kurta, sprawled on this sofa, was actually quite a culture shock. And he gave me, so what I later realized was a typical Avik Sarkar type interview, he asked me, what have you done? Where have you gone to college? So I said, well, I went to college in England. So he said, Oxford or Cambridge? So you have the sense that if I had said Birmingham, he would have ended the interview and shown me to the door immediately. <laughs> Fortunately, I had been to Oxford. So he said, come to come and live in Calcutta and I will give you a job. So I've never been to Calcutta in my life, but I did it because I was so keen to get out of Bombay and experience some more of the real India. And I think what I didn't realize then was he wanted me to relaunch Sunday, which if you remember was started by M.J. Akbar as a very successful one rupee publication. 
but the economics were such they never made any money out of the one rupee publication. Akbar started the Telegraph and moved on. And they tried to take Sunday up market and they really screwed it up royally. So he asked me if I could salvage it. So I said yes. So I took the job in 1986 and I worked for Anand Bazaar in various capacities for 13 years till 1999. 13 years is a long time. It is, yeah. So, so I mean, in retrospect, I should have probably left earlier. But the truth is, I really liked Avik Sarkar. He was actually one of the best people you can work for. I liked the freedom. He became a very close friend, and I was just too comfortable to move. Yeah, I, I, that's the that's the feedback I've got. I haven't had the opportunity of working with him, but people who have worked for him and I have lots of friends, some who are still working with him, who tell me what a great personality he is, what a great human being he is, and a great boss. Uh, I think he's also got that similar thing like Rusi in terms of in some ways he's magnanimous as well. Yeah, very large hearted but yeah. Rusi was larger than life in that if Rusi entered a room, you knew he'd entered a room. Avik is a little bit more introverted and not as much of a character as Rusi was but in a long way he's also quite a character. He's also a very opinionated man and had enormous fun. I, I, because he had this wonderful house in Calcutta with the best, I think probably the world's best collection of Bengali art. And he used to invite a succession of interesting people. Anybody who passed through Calcutta went there. And I remember within my first three days of working in Calcutta, he invited me to dinner with Amartya Sen, which I think he thought would impress me slightly more than it really did because Amartya Sen had been my professor at Oxford and I knew him. But he then, I, I had the sense of a week because he sat down and he asked Amartya one or two cursory questions about economics. And then I think for the rest of the evening, he lectured Amartya Sen about economics. And I realized then that the formula was that a week would invite, say, a great doctor, a great economist, a great lawyer. He would lecture the doctor about medicine. He would lecture the lawyer about the law. And because he was so charming and he was so well-meaning, everybody took it. I mean, how can you not like a man well and what did you do after the telegraph? Let's see, I did Sunday, Sunday, till, about, Sunday. Yeah, I did Sunday till about, I'm trying to remember, 92, 93. Then I became consulting editor for the company. Then I started a column in telegraph. Then I potted around. But around, I'm trying to remember the exact year, I think 1996, I sort of had a, well, distant, relatively distant relationship with Anand though I was still an employee and drawing a salary because television started in India and Urmila Gupta, God bless her, he's really the person who set me on this road, who was then working for Doordarshan, came to me and said, we want to break out of this whole DD format. So will you come and start a program? So I said, what do you want me to do? She said, start a program, which is like question time in there. So we started a program called Question Forum. We didn't really want to do the whole question time thing where you could ask people questions about anything. We made it one subject to me and it did okay. I mean, there was nothing else. So it caused a bit of a splash in those difficult and different times. And then another stroke of luck, Ratikant Basu, who was BG of Doodlashan during that period, they camped and joined Star TV. And I think all of us came as part of his entourage. And so he gave me a show on Star and I was launched for the television career. So Anand Bazaar for the last three years or so, four years, didn't matter that much because I was doing much more television. Yeah, I remember. I mean, it was called Star Talk on Star TV. That's right. Yeah, I used I used to work with Star TV those days. So I, I know. I know. I've, I know. I've, you, I've, you remember I've, that. Actually, he got me because they were all stuck in the same mindset. He said, now you should give up this rubbish with your Doodlashan program. I said, Mr. Basu, when I was doing it, you were saying it was a wonderful program and I should never go anywhere else. He said, no, no, that's changed. So I said, okay, what do I do? So he said, do the same thing. So he brought in Siddharth Basu, of course, an outstanding producer who revamped the show and we called it a question of answers. And I did that for a year. And I mean, you remember the Raj because you were around. Those yeah. were different days for television. Now we're all doing Zooms and all that. In those days, everything was done in the studio and no matter who your guests were, they came. Narendra Modi, I remember coming and joshing with Jairam Ramesh. Indra Gujral, who was Prime Minister at the time, came to the studio for a panel along with Chidambaram, who was then his Finance Minister. 
and took audience questions. So people were willing to take television seriously and give us a certain degree of respect. We also respected that and asked them questions that were important. We discussed things that were meaningful. And I think it's probably the typical old fart speaking, but I think television was better for that in those days. There are talk shows, I mean, there are shows now, not that there aren't, there, but but mainstream television, it doesn't exist, not in the way it used to be earlier. What is the reason for that? Partly demographics, I think we don't realize this, but though the economic reforms took place in 1991, it took what? At least 10 years or more for the effects to be felt. One of the most important effects, significant effects on our society was the creation of a new middle class. These were people who grew up in homes where English was not spoken, where newspapers didn't come into the houses. Their parents who had the misfortune to be in India where India was not really doing that well economically, really struggled. These people were then pushed into the middle class and I think India is a better place for it because we have a nice robust middle class that's not just full of people who read the Times of India or whatever. It's full of people from different walks of life. But once you change the nature of the middle class, you change the nature of everything, including media, which is essentially a middle class activity and the way in which it's consumed. I think that's what we're seeing in India. Yeah. So my, uh, so let me digress a bit, switch gears, as I would say. You also authored a few books. Yeah. And I think you wrote one book with uh, Namita Bandari, if I... Yes, that was a biography of Mother of Sindhya. I mean, yeah. Namita did all of the work. I just helped and shared the credit. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, Namita worked in Indipost. I mean, I remember her, even though it was I a short period. Yeah, I remember. That's actually... She, I think she, she had worked from Sunday talk. after that. Because after this whole Indian Post fiasco, when Vinod was fired and all of that, I don't know if she went with him to the Independent, but perhaps she did. Vinod recommended her to me and we hired her for Sunday, which is how I know. So tell me your relationship with politics, because you've been a col columnist and you've been writing a lot on politics. Yeah, it's never been a particularly close relationship. I mean, there are two kinds of political journalists, I think, I always say, there are people who are in it because they enjoy the politics and there are people who are in it because they enjoy the journalism. I think I was in the latter category. A lot of people who are in it because they enjoy the politics, they say to themselves, hey, this looks easy and go off and join politics themselves. There's no shortage of journalists in politics. But frankly, I mean, politics is not easy. So very few of the journalists who join politics have achieved the kind of success in politics that they achieved in journalism. So I've been happy to be a journalist and to write about it, but beyond a certain point, politics bores me. Yeah, but but do you think, uh, I, I don't think we should uh, judge, but, but would you at ever, some point in your life ever consider politics? Never. It's never ever, there's some things that people ask me, why didn't you do? I remember when I was young, and everybody else was smoking and I never smoked. People said to me, why is that? And there's just something within my mechanism, my mentality that revolted against it. Similarly with politics, the idea of joining a political party, standing for election, doing some to your leader, worrying about whether you were in, whether you were out. Life is too short for them. You've been, you've been very vocal in uh, articulating things. So let me ask you a direct question. Yeah. What is it that you see wrong with news journalism today? Which journalism? What do you see right now? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't actually think there's that much wrong with, say, newspapers or magazines. Though magazines are probably on the way out and sadly, I think so will newspapers be. I remember when I entered journalism, newspapers were really, really bad. And magazines led by India Today and the magazine revolution changed everything. Almost all the people who came into journalism and ran good newspapers came from magazines. Many of them from India Today. Nainan, who sort of reinvented financial journalism in India, came from India Today. Shekhar Gupta, who ran The Express, came from India Today. So, 
I think magazines made a lot of difference and as a consequence I think the newspapers got better. I think most of the newspapers today are actually better than they were when I entered journalism. So I have no criticisms there. If I have a criticism it's a business criticism which is all over the world and in India when I was there in the old old days. You ran on a model where people paid for the news and advertisers subsidized it. In an ideal world, you got 50% of your revenues from subscription or newsstand sales and 50% from advertising. The Times of India, my friend Samir probably had the idea first, changed that. And he said, let's give away the newspaper or charge very little for it. Build up numbers, say you have huge circulation, the economy is booming and it certainly was in the 90s because liberalization had just happened. Let's tap this huge pool of advertising revenue that's out there. And as a consequence, newspapers now are pretty much given away. When I've gone to one or two huge newspaper conferences, global ones, and people keep saying to me, you know, our, our circulations are shrinking. Indian newspapers are doing so well. What is the secret? The secret simple. You charge for your newspapers, we don't. We just slip them under people's doors. So because we started giving away newspapers, we became in a sense, and I think in an interview to the New Yorker, Vineet Jain asked about this, said, look, I've thought about it. And essentially we're in the advertising business. We are merely a vehicle for advertisers to carry their message, which is a perfectly valid view. But I'm not sure it's any longer an economically sensible view, because what will happen is that Advertising will continue to move away from print. Magazines are already in trouble. All over the world, newspapers have had a tough time adjusting to this. In America, something like 500 newspapers have closed down in the last few years. There are many towns in America that don't have a single newspaper. When, and these are people who are willing to pay, uh, charge money for it. When this hits us in India, when advertising goes, the economics of the newspaper business will go for a toss. And when that happens, people will lose their job. It will be become difficult to find the truth anywhere because I don't think electronic media is any respecter of facts. And I think India will be a much poorer society for it. So you just mentioned electronic media. So what do you think, what is your view on the news channels? Well, I wish there were more news channels that were actually news channels. You've, you've been on this, right? you were like one of the founders, you were the founding team of NDTV, you were with Star News, which was the first news channel. So you've seen it all happen. When the, everything was founded, all of us had Western models. We were trying to emulate the BBC or CNN or whatever. An Indian model has now emerged and it's a model that is largely news free. It's a model that is based on the idea that people don't care about facts. They don't really care about the news. They want to be entertained. So if you can give them debates, if you can give them fire in the studio, not only will they enjoy it more, it's pretty much zero cost for you because what did you need in the old days? You had one very hardworking desk and a couple of OB vans and you could construct all your programs around them. Now, after the pandemic, you don't even need the OB vans. You just do it on Zoom or this. So it's the cheapest possible kind of news produced anywhere in the world. It depends almost entirely on manufactured dissent. You have to invite people who will fight with each other. You have to invite people often who don't have that much self-respect, are prepared to be abused by the anchor, are prepared to shout back. When that becomes your model, news is almost certainly going to be the casualty. Yes, there are channels that still try and go back to the old model, but there aren't that many. And you have another problem, at least with English news. You're in the business, so you will know. The share of English news of the entire television universe is between 0.1% to 0.2%. So if you run a channel that's raucous and that's loud, and many people speak in Hindi, you attract part of the Hindi audience, which is a much, much huger audience than the English audience. That inflates your numbers. And you can claim that you're the number one channel, you're the channel India trusts, not the channel India is entertained by. And I don't think, I mean, I always wonder about the advertising industry. People don't seem to make that distinction between actual consumers of news and people who just tune in. If you were to take many, and in the case of the Hindi channel, 
if you were to take some of them and put their ratings next to the ratings of the entertainment channel, they're very small. But basically, that's what they are. They're sort of niche entertainment channels. Yeah, I have my own views on this, but that's for another day. Uh, but quickly coming to, so what's your, and I'm sure you're tracking the industry quite closely. So what's your view on this latest regulation on digital media? I don't know. I think that there's generally a problem with censorship after the advent of technology. In the old days, the government was able to grip, keep a grip on everything. Satellites changed that. Fortunately for the government, satellite television in India ultimately went through cable operators and they were able to clamp down cable operators. The Cable Regulation Act, which you know, is a stringent and harsh act which allows them to do pretty much what they want. They were foiled again by the internet and foiled by streaming technology. They're trying very hard to get their own back and assume some kind of control over streaming content. But can you really do it in this age of VPNs and people breaking things? If you say that Netflix India can only show this after we've cut this out, people will find a way of accessing Netflix USA. There's really not much you can do. It's like bolting the door after the horse is dead. And what, what do you think about all the digital, digital newspapers and digital news sites and things like that? How will it impact that? I think that's actually in many ways going to be the future. I think there will always be a core demand for news for intelligent content. That demand is by and large not being met by television. If it's not being met by the regular channels, people will go elsewhere. If you're watching television on your on your computer, does it make much difference to you that this is a channel that's also available on Tata Sky or through your cable operator because you are accessing it through the internet. So the internet in that sense has created a sort of platform neutral space where everybody is equal. It's only a matter of time, I think, before people give up on the mass market channels and start looking at niche channels which are streamed on the internet. So basically it's uh, it's democratized news. I mean, it's given everybody an opportunity. Anybody can become a, set up their own news at, channel. At for much low cost. I mean, I did a conversation with Varkada who runs the Mojo and she produces, we were doing a discussion. And she said that to do this kind of discussion on NDTV, she required 16 people. To do it on the Mojo, she requires three people. So it's a much cheaper and more honorable way of functioning with less reason to sell it. And if you have to do a Friday's Live with Raj Naik, it costs nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the right people watch it also, which is something that's not true of television. Uh, the other thing which I wanted to ask you was again, I'm so tell me, where did your interest come in food? You know, you started... I've always been interested in food. I've written about food before. In 1982, for I think a year, a couple of years, when Vinod Mehta was editing the Sunday Observer, I was the food restaurant reviewer at the Sunday Observer. And we did it properly in that I wrote under a pseudonym. I would go into restaurants, people would not recognize me. And I would come out and do very reasonable and honest reviews, some of which were brutal takedowns in a stage when restaurants were not used to being taken down. Before that, I'd done this a bit at Bombay Magazine. But you grow up, give up and grow up and grow on and move on. And I stopped really doing food writing till I joined the Hindustan Times. And in, I don't remember the exactly, I think in 2000, 2001, we were revamping the Sunday Magazine, which was then a magazine like all the other newspaper magazines done on broadsheet and I said then that I was the editor that we had to do a food column because I had the sense that food would be really big in the 21st century and nobody really agreed with me so we did a dummy and I wrote a sort of food column for the dummy just to show what it would be like and they said hmm okay maybe but I mean I was the editor so they couldn't really say no and then the time came to launch the actual publication, they still hadn't found a food columnist. So by accident, I became the food columnist. To make it clear that this was not a career I wanted, I did the column for I think two years, three years, under a pseudonym. It was signed Gros Fromage, i.e. Big Cheese, which was an internal joke because I was the editor. And it just took off to the extent that none of us predicted. 
except for me, I have to say, because I thought food would be really, really big. And then Penguin published a collection of the columns, the root food columns, which is the first root food book, and said, look, we can't, it's ridiculous, we can't uh, have as a author's name Big Cheese. We have to use your name. So that's when they used my name, and the jig was up, and I started signing the column. And that's how accidentally, as always, I became a food writer. So what do you enjoy more? Uh, political reporting or root food? You know, I do a political, at least one or two political pieces a week and I do one food piece a week. Now, which one do I enjoy more? Honestly, I enjoy them all. I've always been the kind of person who sought the snobbery that we have, that is only political journalism is worth something and other journalism is worthless and you look down on it. It's foolish. I think one of the reasons why a little bit of boasting. I think I was a successful editor of the Hindustan Times. Is because to be an editor, you have to have range. You have to care as much about what appears on the editorial page as what appears in HT City, which is one of my pet projects, or in Brunch, which is again one of my pet projects. So, journalists should have range. I don't think it is, especially if they're going to be editors. And if you're going to be a writer and not say just a political specialist or whatever, you should put as much interest into writing about the election as you should in the column about samosa. Both are equally important to the readers in terms of the effort you take. So what's your view on the current political scenario? Dismal, I think, not because I'm pro one party or anti one party, but because we are heading towards a period effectively of one party rule. I don't see any effective opposition to this company. And I think in a democracy, that's always a mistake and a bad thing. If you remember in 1971, Mrs. Gandhi won a huge majority in parliament. In 1972, she swept the state elections. She was unchecked. She could do what they what she wanted. The opposition was pretty much useless. And then the protests when they came, came from the streets, from agitation, things led by Jay Prakash Narayan and various other people. And the alternative, therefore, because there was no alternative in parliament, became all kinds of street protests and she had to impose the emergency to survive. So it was not a happy period in India. All democracies, I think, work when there's a strong government and a strong opposition. Yeah, uh, there are no checks and balances. Yeah. So fine, I think we've discussed quite a variety of things. So let me come. What have you been doing these days? Oh God, let's see. I do a column for the HT website, which is usually political. It's called The Taste. I do a column for Branch, which is called Food, which is about food. I do a column for Business Standard once a month, for NDTV twice a month. So basically, I do three columns a week. I also am chairman of something called Culinary Culture, which has hit a bit of a roadblock because of the pandemic, but is essentially a company dedicated to Indian food and to chefs. We were hoping to now, it's been pushed back, do a Mishnet type rating of all Indian restaurants. The ratings are ready, but let's see if they reopen what happens. It's a bit premature to do it because there is no objective and authoritative guide to Indian food. So we're doing that with an academy of about 48 people spread out all over India. I'm also a lead critic and a partner in Easy Diner, which is India's best restaurant reservation service, which ensures that if you want to go to a restaurant and you call us, not only will we get you a booking, we'll get you something extra, a discount, a free dessert, a free drink, I think. What is it so called? There's no meal without a deal. Sorry? What is it called? Easy Diner. Easy the first idea. one, the one, is called yeah. the, the rating one is called Culinary Culture and the reservation service is called Easy Time. And I've written a memoir which Penguin will publish, you taking advantage of the pandemic, which Penguin will publish, I think, next year. And I'm also working on a foodie encyclopedia, which Amazon will also publish next year. So there's rather a lot to keep myself occupied. Great. And what do you do to de-stress yourself? Not a lot here. Honestly, I've thought back on it. And the things that cause me stress in my life, and the thing I've done almost all of my life, I became an editor when I was 22, is managing people. 
I just find it very difficult to cope with everything, to ensure that everybody lives up to my standards, to not offend people without, and yet to impose discipline without letting morale go wrong. So I found that stressful. I don't think I am a natural manager. I mean, by God's grace, I managed for many, many years. But it's nice not to have to manage an organization, not to have to clean up other people's messes, not to have to motivate people. I'm really enjoying just doing my own thing. Great, Veer. It was excellent speaking to you. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. We could have gone on. And uh, thank you so much. I mean, thank you, Raj. It was so different from everything I've done. It was really no, a pleasure. Yeah, before you go, you have to tell me. I mean, uh, what is your best food? What is it that you like? Or what is it that. It's the same thing, yeah. Everybody asks me this who is your best friend? Who is your favorite singer? What is your favorite dish? But you know, in all matters relating to things I write about, I'm generally non judgmental. If you give me a very good Chinese meal, I'll love it. If you give me a good, let's say, Kerala meal, that's probably the most sophisticated Indian cuisine. I love it. You give me a good Malwani meal, I love it. You give me a good French Michelin star type meal, I love it. I like good food and I like it without any kind of uh, choosing between one or the other. If you ask me what me and my wife miss the most and what we try and get, it's chart. I think probably chart, if I had, you held a gun to my head and asked me, I'd probably say chart is my favorite. You know, I can so relate to you. A good foodie will like any kind of food, you know. And yeah, that's what it is. Thank you, Veer. Thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to connecting with you soon offline. But thank you for making the time and being with me on Friday's Live. Thank you, Raj. That was a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this Sochcast. What is your Soch? Send us your comments on our Facebook page and Instagram page. It's time for you to do your own Sochcast. At Sochcast, apni soch dunia ko sunao. Soch.